Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, and this morning we are looking at verses 6 through 17. Please give your attention to God's holy, inerrant, and transforming word. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The Pew Research Center recently released a large-scale study of American Judaism. And one of the most significant finds from that extensive study was that there is a strong trend among young adult Jews that they are either becoming secular and leaving behind the Jewish religion entirely, or they're becoming orthodox, which is the most conservative or most biblical, most faithful to the Old Testament scriptures of the Jewish, the branches of the Jewish religion. And during that time, as a result, there's been a steep decline in reform and conservative Judaism, which, if you ignore the names, are actually the more liberal versions, uh, least tied to the Old Testament scriptures of the forms of Judaism. The same thing is happening in American Christianity, if you observe what's happening in the larger scale at all. Young adults that were raised in the church are either becoming more secular and leaving the church behind, or they're becoming more committed to Christ and to the scriptures. Meanwhile, liberal churches, those that are not as adhered to the authority of Scripture, that don't submit to the authority of Scripture, 
those churches have been declining precipitously. They keep the traditions of Christianity, the terminology of Christianity, but they've departed from the core beliefs of Christianity. I think this trend is only going to continue and strengthen as our culture becomes more and more hostile to the church, to the biblical faith. And, prof and professing Christians are going to have to count the cost. Those who profess to follow Christ are either going to have to decide to hold more firmly to the truth in the light of the opposition, or they're going to give it up and they're going to conform to the ways and thinkings of this world. Al Mohler this week in his commentary uh, was re referencing this study, the, large, the earlier study I mentioned on Judaism, and he said this, he said, I think Christians need to pay very close attention to this because the key issue here is theism or belief in God. The binding authority of theism. In a secularizing age, there really isn't much of a purpose for a mushy middle at all. To put it another way, positions that try to create a middle ground between the secular and the theistic worldviews fail because they are not sufficiently theistic and they're not sufficiently secular to please either the theist or the secularist. In other words, why bother to be involved in a church that doesn't believe the scriptures anymore but teaches the exact same things that the world teaches and practices all the same things the world teaches? This is not a new reality. This has been happening throughout history, even back to the time when Jesus was here on earth. Here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus confronts an empty religion that was going by the name of Judaism. A religion that supposedly was based upon the Old Testament scriptures but actually had departed from the core message of the scriptures. It had lost its way, and it had lost its spiritual vitality. As we look at first the parable he tells, and then what happens after he tells the parable, we can see clearly the contrast between empty religion and a true faith in God. Now I want you to remember the context of this passage. At the end, really most of chapter 12, especially at the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus has been driving home the point over and over again in many different ways that God's judgment is coming, that history is linear, and at the end of that history, we will all stand before the throne of God, and we will have to give an account for our lives. And in light of that, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity for grace. Today is the opportunity to be forgiven. Today is the time to repent. What we're going to see in today's passage is that the call to repent that Jesus has been repeating over and over, this call to repent is not just for the easy targets of society, not just for the thieves and the murderers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It's also for a lot of quote-unquote good religious people. They too need to repent, especially Jesus is going to single out their leaders. They too need to repent. 
So Jesus starts with a parable. And this parable is a picture of what empty religion looks like. He tells about a man who plants a fig tree in a vineyard. That might sound kind of odd to you. Why would he plant a fig tree in a vineyard? But there's meaning to the images. Fig tree and vineyards are images used continuously through the Old Testament and also in the teachings of Jesus as images of God's covenant people. Images of what we would call the visible church, the, the people of God who public, per, publicly profess trust in God and commit obedience to God. What we would call the visible church. And so, if the fig tree and the vineyard both are images, when you put the two together, you get a strong sense of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And it, he's meaning for us to tie in all these biblical teachings that use the image of a tree to symbolize both the individual disciple who follows Christ and also the church that claims to follow Christ. Healthy, fruitful trees and healthy, fruitful vines represent the truly faithful remnant among God's people. I don't know if you're relatively new to Oakwood, maybe you really haven't noticed, but on the front and back of our bulletin is our logo for Oakwood Presbyterian Church. It's a tree that is planted upon the Word of God next to the waters, the life-giving waters. That logo, that picture, is an image of what we strive for here at Oakwood, to be oaks of righteousness, a phrase that is taken from Isaiah 61. It represents our desire to be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, to quote that verse directly. It also draws upon the image, that powerful image at the beginning of Psalm 1, where the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's the picture of faithful discipleship. It's a picture also of a faithful church, faithful to the scriptures and faithful in obedience. The fruit that the scriptures talk about, of course, is the fruit that, that the Apostle Paul enumerates in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the effect of the Holy Spirit working among the true believers to produce these beautiful spiritual fruit. But of course, there's the other side of the image. What about the withered, unfruitful trees and the unfruitful vines? Of course, they represent those believers and those churches that claim to love God, claim to be in the covenant, but yet their lives show no fruit. Their lives show no obedience. Their lives show no vitality, spiritual vitality. And over and over and again in Scripture, the warning is, those kinds of dead trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That was the message that, the, that John the Baptist gave way back in chapter 3, if you'll remember. Listen to his preaching to the Jewish leadership there in Luke chapter 3. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The vineyard, so you have an unfruitful fig tree in this, in this parable. The vineyard was actually the best part of, an owner's, of, a, of a farmer or of a, a property owner's property. It's where it had the richest soil. That's where it got the most loving care. And so to say that this fig tree had been planted in the vineyard of the owner is to speak of, symbolically, the incredible privileges and blessings that the people of Israel had during the time of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul describes these blessings and privileges over in chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. He says, they are the Israelites, and to them bring the, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So in this parable, Jesus is illustrating what he had said back in chapter 12. We read and studied just a couple weeks ago, where he says, Everyone, to, this is verse 48 of chapter 12. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. The Jews had been given every blessing, every privilege. They were in God's vineyard. They were given the best of all spiritual and physical nourishments. They had been given his providential and loving protection and care. They had received the word of God. And from them came the human nature of our Messiah. Fig trees were actually rather difficult to grow. They're very common, even still in the Middle East. But the, it takes a lot of patience to grow them because fig trees typically don't bear fruit for the first four or five years. But at that point, you can tell from what the story that Jesus tells that this owner had patiently waited during the normal time for for the figs, the, the fruit to appear, but they hadn't appeared. And so after four or five years, three more years, he kept going back to the tree to find some fruit, but never found any. And so he says, it's time for it to be cut down. The interesting thing about a fig tree is that from a distance, you can't see the fruit. You have to go up close because the fruit blends in. It has a lot of uh, beautiful leaves and the, the fruit will blend into the fig tree. So you have to go up close to inspect it. But this tree only had leaves. And upon close inspection, there was no fruit. Seven or eight years old and never had fruit. And so the owner says to the vine dresser, the one who took care of the vineyard, he says, I'm done, cut it down. He says, interestingly, why should it use up the ground? In other words, it has one of the prime spots in, in all of my property. Why waste that part of ground by a, a fruit that won't, by a tree that won't bear fruit? We need to cut it down and put a tree there that will use the nutrients and the resources of that place well and bear fruit. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus actually acts out this parable at one point in his life. He's walking down the road, he sees a fig tree in the distance, it has all the beautiful leaves on the fig tree. But when he goes up close to inspect it, he finds no fruit. And in that moment, he cursed the fig tree 
And Matthew tells us the fig tree withered and died in that very moment. It's really the same message, the same warning that Jesus is getting across in this parable. But interestingly, in this parable, the vine dresser intercedes, he mediates. He asks for one more year. He says to the owner, let me dig up the ground and aerate the soil and let me put some manure on the, on the, on the, the roots of the tree and hope that by the end of the year it will begin to bear fruit. You think of the spiritual imagery of that and how God will allow digging in our lives sometimes to bring us to repentance or sometimes he'll administer some manure to our lives that we might turn and repent and this really is, the whole image is a picture of God's patience, isn't it? God's long-suffering with his rebellious people. That's the consistent message of Scripture, is that God is justified in bringing immediate judgment, but he gives time. He's patient. He's not quick to wrath. He allows opportunity for grace. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So even when we don't deal with the digging and the manure in life, when life is good, when life is easy, when life is comfortable, we don't see that as an opportunity to repent in our sinful nature. Instead, we take it as God doesn't really care how I live. I'm going to live the way I want to live but we're supposed to recognize any blessing in life as God's kindness. And God's kindness is an expression of his patience. And God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. Well, did you notice that Jesus' parable here ends on a cliffhanger? Does the fig tree bear fruit after a year or doesn't it? I think Jesus intended his listeners to ponder that question. Because the fig tree and the vineyard, the, the fig tree represented Israel. Israel in his day. Because Israel in his day still had opportunity to repent. They still had opportunity to believe, to trust him as the Messiah. And even after they crucified him by the hands of the Romans, still they had the opportunity. God was patient. He gave an opportunity for repentance. So that the Apostle Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, repent and believe, repent and be baptized. And thousands of Jewish people did. But for the rest, 70 AD came. God's punishment upon the nation was poured out. It was destroyed by the Romans. And the rest of the Jews were scattered throughout the world. But always God has a faithful remnant. There is always a subset of the visible church, of the visible church of the Old Testament, the visible church of the New Testament. There's always a subset of faithful remnant. It says, interestingly, going back to Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus actually cursed a fig tree and they saw the fig tree die at his word. He ends that several verses later by talking about how he is the promised cornerstone of the kingdom of God that had been rejected by the builders. And he says, because they rejected him, quote, 
the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, the faithful remnant. And so this parable is intended to be another call to you. How many times have we heard this in the last few weeks? Another call to you to closely examine your heart and your life. Are you living a life of increasing repentance? Does your life increasingly show the fruit of the Spirit? Love, peace, patience, kindness. Is the character of Christ becoming more the character of your heart, of your life? If not, today is the day to repent. Is your life characterized by spiritual vitality? Or is your life like that fig tree? Lots of leaves, lots of religiosity, but little or no fruit. What happens after the parable is interesting because basically what happens after the parable is we get a living example of both the true and empty religion in verses 10 through 17. Jesus begins teaching in a synagogue, and if you don't know what a synagogue was, it was basically like a, a, almost like a, a house church. Uh, ten elders would come together and form a synagogue, and, and so it would be a gathering of those families together in a small church that usually met in, in, in homes, a synagogue. And Jesus is teaching there, teaching Jewish people. And he notices that among this group, there is a woman who has a disabling spirit. Now remember, Luke is a doctor, and so Luke describes her physical suffering. He says that she was, she, basically the way he describes it, she had a deformed spine so that she was hunched over for 18 years. And you can imagine not only the inconvenience and difficulty of just living with that, but today we have pain medication. Back then, you can imagine she was probably daily in pain with this condition. It was ongoing suffering. But there's an added element to it, not just the physical suffering, because Luke tells us that there was a spirit of disability, a, a disabling spirit. And in verse 16, Jesus says that Satan had bound her for 18 years. And so her suffering had both a physical element to it and a spiritual element to it. Probably like Job, this is kind of an unusual way of describing an ailment in the New Testament, but probably just like Job, Satan had to ask permission to afflict Job. And so Satan had asked permission to afflict this woman for 18 years. But Jesus calls her forward. And he says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And for the first time in 18 years, she stood up straight. And having stood up straight, she lifts her hands to heaven and she praises God. She lived out that idea of be, being an oak of righteousness to the glory of God. You see, the miracles of Jesus were signs of his kingdom. And he came to restore. To restore sinners spiritually and physically. Going back to Isaiah 61, from which we get that phrase, oaks of righteousness to the glory of God, it said, and Jesus preached this passage in his very first sermon during his ministry. That passage says that he came to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to give them a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. 
Jesus came to restore us to what we were intended to be. He came to shed his blood on the cross as an atonement, as a covering to take away our guilt and shame. He came to obey perfectly so that his righteousness could be given to those who put their faith in him so that we might be robed in his righteousness so we are not only forgiven of our many sins, but we are given the gift of his perfect obedience by faith. And having been made perfect in the eyes of God, having our sin taken away as far as east or from west, then the Spirit is given to us to give us a character like Christ, to give us the fruit of the Spirit, that we might become like him. This is the spiritual fruit that Jesus said was missing from the fig tree of the Jewish leadership that he addressed. And representing that Jewish leadership, the ruler of the synagogue steps forward. Now, he would be the elder who was responsible for the synagogue service, kind of like the pastor of that synagogue. And he's angry. And interestingly, he scolds the people. He must have been somewhat of a coward because he didn't scold Jesus. He scolds the people and he says to them that they should not come looking for healing and restoration on the Sabbath. Do that on the other six days, but that Jesus and this woman were breaking the Sabbath by doing a work of healing. Another spiritually blind person leading the blind. He was an example of the one, the type of person that Jesus referred to back in chapter 12, verse 56, the leaders who were unable to interpret the present time. They did not recognize what God was doing before their very eyes in the coming of Christ. You see, the Old Testament law did not forbid the caring for the sick on the Sabbath, but many of their man-made rules and traditions did. One commentator says that the Jewish leaders had allowed the Sabbath to be, quote, fossilized and encrusted with traditions to the point that they lost its meaning and purpose. And as I reflected on that this week, I thought about, you know, thinking about how either people are coming to Christ and trusting in him and his word, or they're going to the world and the ways of the world, there's no middle ground anymore, I thought about how when you think about false religions and secularized people, people who don't have a religion, they still live by legalism, don't they? They still have a code of ethics, a list of rights and wrongs about how people are supposed to live. And they love to point a finger at everybody else who's not living up to that code of ethics. And they're intolerant of people who disagree with their code of ethics. And there is no, the sad thing about false religion and secularization is that there's no grace in that. There's no shed blood, there's no atonement, there's no basis for forgiveness. Well, in verse 15, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of that ruler and those who are like-minded in their midst. He says, you, if you read your own traditions, your own man-made rules, you'll see that you allowed people to take their ox or their donkey from eating at the manger to lead them out to the water to get a drink, which 
would be considered a work, but because it's an act of mercy to animals, it's allowed by the rabbis. He says, and yet you will not allow me to heal this woman on the Sabbath? Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I can't think of a better way to observe the Sabbath than to free this woman from the spiritual and physical bondage that she's lived in for 18 years, because that's what the gospel is about. It's about restoration. It's about mercy. It's about new life and forgiveness. Do you notice that Jesus calls this woman a daughter of Abraham? One other occasion, he called somebody not a daughter of Abraham, but a son of Abraham. That was Zacchaeus, the tax collector who repented and believed in Christ. And he called him a son of Abraham. He calls this woman a daughter of Abraham. And that's consistent with the way Jesus spoke about Abraham. That just because you had physical lineage from Abraham, that did not make you a true believer. That did not make you part of the true covenant of grace. In John chapter 8, Jesus was speaking to unbelieving Jews and he said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And so Jesus is making that distinction between the true daughters and sons of Abraham and those who made the claim but not, did not have the rights to the title. Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This one who claimed to be a son of Abraham sought to deny a daughter of Abraham from being restored by the Messiah on the Sabbath day. What a gross twisting of the Sabbath. In true, healthy, fruitful faith, the Sabbath is a gift to sinners. It's a day of rest. Yes, a day to rest from the sweat and the thorns and the thistles and pain of our normal, common, everyday work and calling. But it's a day to celebrate the covenant, to celebrate God's grace, to celebrate God's goodness, to celebrate God's mercy towards us. And one of the best ways to celebrate God's mercy towards us is to show mercy towards others, as he did to this woman. In Hebrews chapter 4, it goes beyond that to say that the Sabbath is a day to celebrate the rest that we have in Christ. We celebrate the work that Christ did so that we can rest in him. How he obeyed God perfectly and then suffered the punishment that we deserve on the cross so that we can receive the gift of eternal rest. And so Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of this synagogue ruler to say that he was all about his religion, but there was no fruit. He was like the fig tree with the beautiful leaves for his religiosity, but there was no spiritual fruit as Christ looked at his heart. We wince as Christians when people call what we live for a religion. Because what the world means by religion is not what we have. Jesus actually described what we live for in John chapter 15. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, our lives, if we are truly committed to Christ, is about abiding. It's not about doing. It's not about a code of ethics. All those things flow out of an abiding in him. The source of our life is in abiding in him, resting in him so that we have the desire, let alone the ability, to serve him and to bear spiritual fruit. As many of you know, uh, Oakwood, uh, the leadership of Oakwood and, and some of the members of Oakwood are working with a small church about 40 minutes south of here in Alexandria, Pennsylvania, a church with a fascinating story that fits well into this parable that Jesus tells. Because this church in Alexandria, Christ Reformed Church, actually was planted and started back in the 1850s. It's been around that long. And for many, many decades, it faithfully preached the gospel and abided by the word of God and proclaimed Christ. But then towards the end of the last century, it began to become unfaithful. Stopped preaching the scriptures, stopped preaching the gospel, and eventually became so liberal that it joined one of the, actually the most liberal denomination in our country, the United Church of Christ. And it was like the fig tree in Jesus' story, it was spiritually dead without fruit. But God did an amazing thing. He, through some very bizarre circumstances, called a young man who loved the scriptures, who loved Christ, who loved the gospel. He called this young man. He had been trained in one of the best seminaries, Westminster Seminary. Somehow he led him to come and pastor and preach the gospel in this little country church. And what happened over the next several years is the dead branches were cut off. The people who hated the gospel, the people who didn't want any part of that kind of a church left. And the church started over with the people who were responding to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and were putting their faith in Christ. And it's still a small church, but it's a spiritually growing and healthy church and it's bearing fruit. God has actually in the same location cut off the old and dead religious body and replaced it with a living, vibrant body of believers that are looking to do the will of God and bear the fruit. I think, in a very real sense, it's a good thing that people more and more are seeing a choice to follow Christ as a binary choice. Either you give your heart to him 100%, live for him as Lord, and commit yourself to him and to his glory, or just walk away completely. It's good that that's a binary choice because we've been plagued in this culture, in this country, with a mushy middle for way too long. We've unintentionally communicated the idea that you can say that you believe, 
and even do a lot of religious things, but then live the way the world lives and believe the way the world believes and still be okay in the eyes of God. Again, this passage is saying to anybody who is just religious but not fruitful, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe and find the freedom from your bondage that Christ offered to this woman. Judgment day is coming. And 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that so many here this morning are bearing fruit, are truly trusting in Christ, have been cleansed by the blood and are covered with the righteousness of Christ and are adopted into your family, are your sons and daughters, sons and daughters of Abraham and sons and daughters of you, their God and creator. But maybe there's somebody here this morning that's, as they look at their own heart and their own life, have really just been religious. And it's an empty religion. It's not significantly changing their life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring them to humility, to brokenness before you to confess their need for a Savior, to cry out to you for mercy. And Lord, I pray that you will awaken that heart, give it a desire to, to abide in Christ, to love him and serve him, that that heart might bear fruit to your glory. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. And Lord, as you delay your judgment, may we take this opportunity to not only repent ourselves, but call others to repent as well and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only hope of sinners. We pray in Christ's name, amen.